Hello, I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 2 of Seen From Above, an informal podcast about the cool things happening in Earth observation. Check out seenfromabove.org for the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSeenFrom and using the hashtag SeenFromAbove. In this episode, we talk to Emil Cherrington. Cool, let's do the news then. On the 11th of March 2020, I've got a few things I've seen since we last spoke, and a couple of articles on the BBC have caught my eye. Uh, The first one is satellite images revealing the destruction and displacement in the Syrian war. And we often talk about analytics and classification and AI and all the cool stuff that's going on in the Earth observation sphere. But this time, I think these images that are on the BBC page about the visual impact of the war in Syria are just horrifying. You get to see how these settlements and these displacement camps have been impacted. And it says here, half a million children are crammed into camps and shelters on the border of Turkey with no access to decent life. Um, These are absolutely shocking images. And you're right, sometimes you don't need to do the analytics to understand the, the power of the impact that these images can have. Yeah, I hadn't seen these at all. We should remember that this is what our Earth observation industry is giving to the news today and this is how the data that have been acquired by in this case maxar you know this is this is how this information is being communicated and it's quite powerful there's an irony that probably satellite data was used in order to generate the destruction in the first place and it's also being used to communicate the destruction after the event yeah i mean we've spoken before haven't we that quite often the most powerful satellite images and the most seen images i assume are often ones of things that aren't necessarily good news so floods natural disasters and humanitarian crisis uh, there's not really much else to say is there so frustrating you look around the world at all the measures and emergency things that have been put in place around this coronavirus outbreak and you, you, you think if people can mobilize for that why can't we mobilize to stop things like this no, thank you for bringing that to the attention of myself and, and all the listeners. But another BBC-related links, but it's about ISI. So we've talked about ISI before, and they're effectively a small startup out of Finland uh, with the idea of SAR satellites in a suitcase, cheap to launch. I think they've launched uh, three or four now. Maybe they've launched even more. They've released video now ah. from their sensors. So we have talked in the past, and we made a bit of a thing about it, video from space and this was always from optical data but this is the first time I believe anybody's done anything with radar data or SAR data and it's quite interesting and they've shared a few clips of I was going to say movies but I don't know if that's the right term but there's a few videos floating around but the articles that they've published as well go into sort of quite detail about how they've built these videos and and the challenges associated with them and I throw this question open not just to you Alistair but Can you see a use for this at this present time? I don't want to be dismissive of it, but video from space in optical data has certainly not gained the traction that perhaps was hoped for in the past. I sometimes wonder whether my brain doesn't think in the right way because I look at this and and this is really cool. And the, the optical video from space was really cool as well. And I get from a technical perspective why it's really cool. But from a commercial angle, I can't see where the niche is for people who are going to be using this information. 
the issue I have with some of these videos is I can't see who the end user is going to be who's sat there going, oh, yes, I'm getting, I'm getting some information from it. I can thoroughly see that there's loads of people who will be sat there going, this is the coolest thing I've seen for ages. And, and maybe that's good enough. I don't know. I suppose the ultimate endpoint will be someone somewhere will script up some AI that will track things in it. And that will be where the value comes from. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that ISI are, are, are doing something very unique. And I don't mean that in the videos. I mean in that in their the constellation of satellites yes, yeah. doing very agile uh, SAR acquisition. You know, the space radar movies track motion on Earth's surface is pretty interesting. And, and as you say, I think it's pretty amazing from a technological point of view. Yeah, definitely. I'm hopeful that I'm enlightened by business applications. I'm sure I will be. I just, like you, I'm kind of wondering what they're going to be at, the, at this moment in time. Yeah. Um, so I've got two quick announcements. They're both calls for startup support, I suppose. Shell, they've got something called the Game Changer program that is looking to work with startups and businesses that are on unproven early stage ideas. And they basically want to try and support those organizations if they have the potential to impact on the future of energy. Specifically, they're looking to use Earth observation data and our good friend AI to try and address challenges that Shell faces, mainly around various aspects of trying to reduce its carbon footprint. And then the second one is a European Space Agency competition, again, for startups. And this is just really looking for entrepreneurs in all of the European Space Agency member states um, who are looking to try and develop services and products using space technology. They're talking about the 2020s being the decade of the startups in space and and this is one way that they're going to try and kickstart that. I would be interested to know how after these projects have been funded, if they become commercially viable or how that is measured. Every time there's something like this, we fixate on the Earth observation data becoming the solution and we don't focus on what the problem is. So I think it will be better for Earth observation type companies or people like ourselves to be one step behind the people with innovative ideas um, and then we get involved. So we get enlightened by their idea. Okay, so I've got I've got a, um, a couple of things to mention, sort of more in the kind of technical sphere Fast AI, I've talked about Fast AI quite a bit before. It's a deep learning library built on top of PyTorch. But yeah, Fast AI, I've released this uh, Fast AI fast book that's uh, onto um, GitHub. And bearing in mind that this is, this is only for personal use. There are 20 different Jupyter notebooks with this book and they're constantly being updated. So as of recording, the last time these were updated were about five days ago. So it's really interesting and steps you through all this deep learning and AI technology. Second thing was I came across this UData Python bookshop. This is a good introduction. If you're looking for Python training and you're looking for an introduction to uh, Jupyter Notebooks, NumPy, Matplotlib, all, all this kind of stuff, X-Ray that we've talked about with Robin before, data analysis, then this is another great example of wow, yeah, Python. Cool. Yeah, so um, it's in this kind of notebook format but maybe presented a little bit easier to read in a web-based readable thing so do go and check that out my final thing that i want to mention is more 
I guess it's technical, but it's also cultural. I feel a bit funny that I haven't come across this before. Um, so this is a story I found that is basically about how Earth observation technologies are being used to combat illegal deforestation. And we've heard about that before in multiple different arenas, but this time it's being used by indigenous cultures living in the Brazilian Amazon. And this is a story that the Group on Earth Observations have put out on their website, and it's from middle of February, about a visit to their annual meeting in Geneva by someone called Chief Almir of the Surui people. I hope I've got that right. And the chief is pretty well known. He's been working with Google Earth for over a decade to train community members on how to map and geotag and create a cultural map so that they can share their history and way of life with people around the world. So this started in 2009 when Google visited the Surui people and trained them in the use of something called the Open Data Kit to record instances of illegal logging. And since then, the tribe members have basically captured GPS data and various other types of information and, and uploaded them onto uh, the Google Earth site. It's a really cool story about how this technology is being used in a really positive way, even though it's capturing, I suppose, negative instances of illegal um, yeah. and things like that. But it's being the, the technology is being used on the ground to actually try and make a difference. Yeah, cultural map on Google Earth. That's cool, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think we'll leave it there for the news. We're super lucky to have with us Emil Cherrington from Server. Emil, hi. Could you just give us a quick introduction to yourself, please? Sure. I've been working in spatial for a little over 15 years. So I've seen a little bit of how the landscapes evolved. Um, of those 15 years, I've spent 14 years off and on working with the Server program, uh, except for the three years that I spent in Europe doing my PhD studies in ecology. And uh, prior to joining Server, uh, just out of my master's degree, I spent a year and a half working for the government of Belize uh, doing GIS. Right, there's a, an absolute ton of things that I want to ask you, and I'll try and do this in some semblance of order so it makes sense. Can you just quickly say what Servir is and why it's needed? Sure. What is Servir? Just quickly to say that Servir completed its 15th year anniversary last month, since starting in February of 2005. It's a partnership of NASA, USAID, and regional, leading regional uh, organizations, including ADPC, ECMOD, RCMRD, Agrimet, and SEAT, and partners. Um, and it seeks to develop innovative solutions to, to improve livelihoods and foster self-reliance in Asia, Africa, and the Americas. And it connects space to village by helping developing countries to use satellite data to address critical challenges in four thematic areas, which are agriculture and food security, water resources and related disasters, weather and climate, and land cover land use and ecosystems. And so keeping in mind, uh, severe focuses on, again, five regions and four thematic areas. And in terms of quickly the why, um, Servir essentially brought together a development agency that is the U.S. Agency for International Development and NASA Space Agency with this whole idea of taking Earth observation data and applying that to, again, development challenges. Is that capacity building? Is that how you're doing it? You're helping people sort of in those regions get their own skills and, and ability to use the data? Yes, Servir is definitely a, a capacity building uh, program. And I guess just to take it a little step back, you know, there's obviously a NASA part to Severe, that world in which uh, Severe comes from essentially, you know, I, I work for the Severe Science Coordination Office. It fits, fits within 
the capacity building program within NASA's Applied Sciences program, which in turn sits within the Earth Science Division. And basically, yes, Severe has this focus on building capacities, uh, and that has kind of changed over time, where in the very beginning, service focus was on getting people access to, to NASA and other types of satellite data, but changing over time this, this uh, reality, and that's how NASA is essentially kind of learned from USAID of having what we uh, term a co-development approach of you know, identifying the partners you're going to work with, learning from them, working with them to develop solutions jointly with them. So I've um, been coming across recently the AfriGeo and the African Data Cube initiatives. How does Survey sit alongside those types of initiatives? Specifically with regard to AfriGeo and maybe stepping a little bit back and speaking about uh, Geo in general. So again, Survey came on, came on the scene in 2005. And around that time, that was when the Intergovernmental Group on Earth Observations, Geo, uh, came about. And I guess have kind of parallel objectives or missions where you know, GEO is, you know, this community of nations uh, seeking to, again, build their capacity to, to use Earth observation data. And then AFRI-GEO and the other regional GEO initiatives, again, trying to do that on this uh, continental scale, are severe hubs. And I, I mentioned uh, the five of them. We have two hubs in Africa, uh, RCMRD, which is a center based in Nairobi, but covering uh, eastern southern Africa. And Agrimet leading a consortium of six institutions focused on West Africa. They are key members of AfriGeo. And in fact, the AfriGeo Secretariat uh, is sitting for the next few years uh, at RCMRD. And so how Severe contributes to, to AfriGeo is um, in, again, collaborating uh, in capacity building activities that are being done and then making linkages with the different space agencies. Okay, cool. Given that a lot of Earth observation project work is quite site-specific, how does Server deal with the sort of global implementation, or are all the projects done through the five different nodes? Yeah, that's a that's a kind of complex question, but um, yeah, I know. Sorry, <laughs> I'd say that um, I think with Server, uh, we as a network do do a combination of both. Server actually started in Mesoamerica, and so I worked with Server Mesoamerica. You know, starting in you know like the eleventh month of of Severe started about, I was working at Severe Mesoamerica, uh, and then taking this model and saying, all right, hey, the types of things we're doing in Mesoamerica, could this be done in East Africa? And that's how Severe Eastern Southern Africa was born. And after that came these different hubs. And so trying to get at the answer to your question, part of it is this idea of upscaling, you know, best practices or successes from one region. And I could give you a, a simple example. I serve as the regional science coordination lead for what Sever is working on in West Africa, at least on the, the NASA side. And we've been able to take things that were developed for Sever Mekong, uh, and we've basically taken that code and modified that and used it for looking at ephemeral water bodies in the Sahel part of West Africa, using the same types of techniques, same types of data sets, uh, namely Landsat 8, Sentinel-2, and being able to pick off you know, where these water bodies are and monitor them over time. And also working with communities to kind of to get that information into their hands. I think maybe this is a little bit linked to that answer as well. We're being swamped with data at the moment. I mean, that yeah. is something that is amazing for those of us who've been in the, the industry for a while. But some of that is atmospherically or topographically or both corrected. Do you think these data are sort of fit for purpose, inverted commas? Is the data really analysis ready on behalf of the, the different severe hubs who are, who are doing this kind of work, saying that there's definitely been... Um, you know, mixed experiences in terms of, of how to use analysis-ready data or use data that might be as analysis-ready. And so def definitely there, there's all, there are always caveats in terms of you know, what can be used 
nonetheless, us having a global network, which I forgot to mention, also has touches something like 500 people across you know, these five regions, as well as, you know, folks working here in the U.S., being able to share those experiences, you know, even though Servere is kind of focused on, again, these five regions, uh, we do work on some things which are, as you asked before, global in scope. One of those that we're proud of uh, is the SAR handbook, which we think uh, you might have heard about, and that kind of addresses what you were asking about. So again, we saw that as a gap in the global Earth observation community. SAR has obviously been around for a while, but it wasn't until the great work from our colleagues at Copernicus putting out Sentinel-1 uh, frequently and freely and openly available. And so uh, we worked with U.S.-based researchers, primarily folks like Franz Meyer from the NYSAR science team and others, and put together, again, a kind of guide for walking people through, here's the data, don't be afraid of it, how do you use it? And then lastly, just to also mention that the handbook was also edited by a few of us here at the Science Coordination Office, uh, including my colleagues, uh, Africa Flores, Kelsey Herndon, myself, and Dr. Rajesh Tapa, who's a SAR expert from ACMOD and Server HKH. But again, same kind of concern you have of, we can be inundated by data, but I think as a community, we kind of have to come together now and again and put something together, work on something and say, all right, how do we move forward? How many people are working in NASA on Earth observation? Um, nice, easy one. <laughs> no, you know, not, not just generally. I ask because the public's perception think NASA just sending things to the moon. So NASA has multiple divisions and it does have a very strong uh, Earth Science Division. And within the Earth Science Division, there's, all, there's an Applied Sciences program. Uh, and that's where Severe sits. Uh, in terms of the how many, probably a, a few thousand. Yeah. Do you think you need a PhD to work with satellite data? I'm speaking here as the only person on this call without a PhD. I don't think that one needs a PhD to, to do this kind of work for you know, multiple reasons. I think that the, the work of, of programs like Severe work of programs like Copernicus, et cetera, the onus is on, on various programs to to provide certain level of, of skills for working through uh, different types of satellite data, et cetera. Facial should be kind of for everybody. Our community will only grow when we ensure that we see how to tie in, again, you know, people from, from around a range of things. So, you know, like I studied biology as an undergrad. There are people in, in NASA who work on health. There are people who come from all these different backgrounds. Yeah, I think the barriers are sort of dropping open, aren't they? And the compute has changed so much in our industry. And the cost of data has fallen. We've talked about open data and stuff. Earth Engine and other tools have, have really sort of been transformative in the last five years. And how do you see the ecosystem today? Do you think this is the direction of travel? And in fact, uh, I was, so I was listening to, you know, a few of your recent podcasts and one of them where you talked about, you know, you said you guys saw yourselves as Earth observation scientists and now you consider yourselves Earth data scientists. Yeah. I definitely think that the community in general has also changed and it's, We'd like to think partly as a result of the, the Landsat archive becoming open. So again, I remember the days also because I was working with Severe when we also, even on the NASA side, people had to purchase uh, Landsat images. And so for instance, with Severe Mesoamerica, it was like, all right, we need exactly 50 Landsat images to cover, you know, 2006 to cover, you know, these different countries. And it costs a lot of money. And, you know, that was the type of analysis that people were doing. And obviously now that, you know, you can get, all the Landsat images you want, or, you know, you talk Sentinel-2, for instance, which five-day repeat because they have the Sentinel-2A and the 2B, et cetera, and there's just so much data. 
But I also, I would like to think that obviously it's been a huge benefit to the community of, of having, you know, more things. However, also working with people who, I guess, you know, jumped into earth observation, say before that shift to big data analytics, et cetera, came on. Yeah. It's also been a challenge. And I guess part of our focus as well has had to shift. And I just like to also take that opportunity to mention that um, one thing that USAID pioneered along with NASA a few years ago was something called the severe service planning toolkit. And part of it was as well, in terms of paradigm shifts, one of the things I'm sure that you guys have seen as well is, you know, once upon a time it was, all right, we have this one satellite image, we're going to make this product. Uh, and this is what the client, be it an organization or, a, you know, an agency, et cetera, is asking for. And that has shifted, you've seen into services, no? With this service planning toolkit, it's also a guide and it's all of what I've talked about is, is available on serverglobal.net. You can find the server the service planning toolkit there as well. I want to ask you this question, and you can sort of like laugh it off if you like. But why do you use Belize Geo, and why why do you sort of talk about this stuff on Twitter so much? You might not be able to tell from my accent. I'm actually originally from Belize, and so that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is just in terms of science communication. Obviously, the the work that both of you are doing, you know, with your podcast, you know, really fits into this need for. There's so much happening out there, but if we don't share it with each other, how will people ever know? And also sharing these examples that you do help to inspire other people as well. And so while Belize Geo obviously doesn't have a podcast, I was also inspired by other people. Uh, her name is Sarah Aparicio from, from the European Space Agency. And it was kind of like, wow, you know, here's the scientist who, you know, not only is into analytics and these other things, but is also wears this communication hat. And I should also mention that um, Lawrence Friedel, who's actually the director for the Applied Sciences Program within NASA's Earth Science Division, he stressed over and over and said that, you know, look, scientists across the board have this amazing opportunity to engage the public by reaching out and communicating what's the value of the work we're doing. People working all over the globe on some really amazing, interesting things. Obviously, 15 years ago, perhaps those platforms for sharing that weren't there. But now that we do have these platforms, why not take advantage of them? And, and also Sandra Kaufman, who's the Acting director of the uh, Earth Science Division for NASA, she's likewise echoed the same thing on her Twitter account and just saying, hey, there's all these people out there doing some amazing stuff. Um, I've also tried to help to amplify other voices. And that's something that I've seen Morgan Crowley and Ladies of Landsat yeah. doing. And, you know, in my office, we have maybe, you know, 30 people or something. There are also folks who are doing, you know, this SciComm work as well, well, mainly science and also partly communicating. And again, they're doing some awesome stuff. I, I think that's a, a, an interesting point because that's something that we've been deliberately trying to do here as well is find news from outside of Europe or outside of the US and, and be able to share that. And it it's much harder than we initially thought it would be to find out what's going on. In part, I suppose, because some of the languages are different. Even so, just trying to find out what new companies are coming out or what new services are being put out by governments and things like that. I think this this whole notion of being able to talk about the science and communicate it more widely is really important. Just earlier today, I was talking with other colleagues about you guys' podcast and again saying, you know, People who are, again, tuning in because you guys are providing this, this important service, which otherwise isn't there of, again, spreading the news about what the EO community is working on. And, you know, you asked about or saying it's kind of difficult to find out about other things that are going on. like to also mention that uh, related to Severe, there's another uh, NASA-supported program called NASA Harvest. Uh, you might have you know, heard of them. Yep, yep. Alyssa Whitcraft, Catherine Nakalembe, who also wears a Severe uh, Applied Sciences team hat. Anna Kerner, Christina Justice, Belen French, et cetera, 
also people who are prolific, you know, SciComm people on Twitter as well. I mean, we really want to just get the conversation going. I'd like to bring that more online in the future. I do sometimes get concerned that we miss collective all of us, you know, in the Twitter ecosphere, that we miss the people who are the silent majority, perhaps, because I was certainly one of those. There's probably loads out there. I just don't know if I'm looking or listening in the right place. And, you know, that's my own failings and ignorance. But I I really appreciate the work that you do on Twitter as well to broaden the the horizon. And, you know, we are one big family, I, I sort of think. I think to one of the things, because both of you have that vantage point of time you're also able to talk about how the situation has evolved. And sometimes I also feel like those who are coming in more recently have kind of missed out on some of the fun, quote unquote. <laughs> like, you remember when you'd get Landsat imagery as 8-bit and then you'd have to use, you know, probably Envy or Erdas to convert it. And that was if you had the metadata file that you, you, know, you hadn't deleted that. And then when you had it in Radiance, then you had to also figure out how to take it to top of atmosphere reflectance. And then if you're using Envy, maybe one of the only things you knew how to do was a dark object subtraction. And that would be your surface reflectance you know, estimate. Because again, NASA lead apps and all these things didn't exist yet. And so it's kind of like, you know, all, all the new people don't have the fun of, or, or sometimes I feel like maybe they don't appreciate all of the struggles that, that we had to go through. I've just come up with a really cool idea for an episode. We should get a bunch of us together who are all roughly the same age and have, I don't know, call it a campfire episode or something. We can just sit there and go like, yeah, my PhD was done on nine images. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one thing, as you've mentioned, and one thing we're keen to do through the podcast and through the Twitter account that we have is promote this sort of increased diversity in the Earth observation sector. Would you say that the sector is doing a good job? The way I'll read your question is, Nowadays, there's all sorts of products now available that weren't there before. In my own interactions professionally with people from different governments, etc., you know, they'll say, oh, but we, you know, somebody who maybe isn't as exposed from a government will say, but we have the satellite imagery. So, so what's the problem? Why can't we get X thing? I think we need to do a little better in terms of exposure learning. Yes, there's a great deal of data, but in terms of getting from data to usable information, there's still a lot of work there to do. And yet there's also, as you said too, there's so much space to grow you know, in our community, et cetera. I think it's just something that we need to do, but we're not there yet. Cool. I'm afraid that we're going to have to end it there. Thank you. It's been absolutely brilliant. There's so many more questions I think we could ask you about so hopefully at some point we'll meet up at a conference or something when all the various different uh, travel bands have been <laughs> got rid of thank you emil thanks so much again we encourage you to drop us a line through twitter using at eocenefrom where you can find a vibrant community growing up around the podcast thanks for listening and that's it for now thanks andrew thanks alistair Hmm, I should think about that.
podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.